Social justice means applying the law equally to all people. But in practice, that doesn't always happen. I'm John Gonzalez. I'm here at my law partner, Jack Derora. We practice law. We seek social justice. On this show, we reveal the conflict between the two. You know, for a while, it was just us in the office over a cup of coffee talking about the news of the day with social justice issues dominating our culture. Our focus became, how do we as lawyers make a difference? And now it's not just us. Today, we have Laura Kohler, past president of the Ohio State Board of Education to talk about the issue of race and inequality in Ohio's school system. Welcome, Laura. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Jack, I got a couple questions for you. Would it surprise you to know that Ohio's education has not been immune to racism and inequality uh, issues that the whole country is facing? I would not be shocked to know that. Wait a minute. You said, say it again. Is has it not immune? been immune. Oh, absolutely. It's not been immune. Would you agree that racism, hate, and bigotry have no place in schools? Yes, that's easy to agree to. Is it reasonable that the State Board of Education would offer bias training for department education employees and contractors? Seems like a good idea. How about asking department employees to make recommendations to the State Board to eliminate bias and racism in the academic standards and curriculum? You'd have to be a Cretan living under a rock to oppose that idea. Does it make good policy that the department supports school districts um, that are examining uh, unequal treatment in hiring, staff development, student discipline, and other operations? The only person who would oppose that is someone like David Duke. <laughs> well, Laura is going to talk to us about a resolution that she uh, helped pass as the president of the um, school board uh, or the board of education, excuse me, that addressed all of those concerns. Laura, why was that so controversial or was it when it was passed? Uh, it, well, it wasn't particularly controversial when it was passed. It passed on a vote of uh, 12 to 5. Um, and the state board, as you may or may not know, is made up of both elected and appointed members. And at the time, um, every one of the uh, appointed Republican members voted in favor of it. So this was um, a resolution that was passed around uh, the time of uh, George Floyd's death. Is that correct? Yes, shortly thereafter. And was that uh, influenced the, uh, the resolution and how it was written or, or uh, how it was um, uh, advanced through the, uh, through the board? Actually, it did. Um, it just as you, you said in your introduction about um, really wanting to use this podcast as an opportunity to look at social justice and figure out what you as attorneys can do, uh, that was my state of mind after George Floyd. I thought each of us has an obligation to look for ways that we can ensure that this does not ever happen again. My sphere of influence happened to be education, and the group I was working with was the State Board of Education. And so I drafted a resolution um, to acknowledge the fact that there were inequities in the system and to pledge the board to work to resolve those inequities. What is the board's role, um, and why did you feel like a resolution might be a good vehicle to bring those issues to the forefront? Well, it's interesting in that the board has very limited direct control over local school districts. However, um, we do 
I say we, I still haven't quite adjusted to not being a member, but the board does have a bully pulpit. And uh, in for that reason, I felt it was appropriate to use our uh, ability to communicate with others uh, to advance what we could directly tie to academic inequities in performance. I'm interested. You said that was a vote of 12 to 5. What were the objections, in short, to those five people who voted against it? Um, I think that they had generalized objections about the appropriateness of the board's um, role in the discussion. I think some people had it tied up in the defunding police um, conversations that were going on. Um, interestingly, the resolution that I first proposed was actually very uh, milk toast, and it was not well received by the board. So I asked anyone who had an interest in the topic uh, if they would work with me. And so the what was eventually presented and passed was the work of about four of us um, taking examples from what other school districts had done, what other colleges, what other professional associations had done. Thinking about the 12 to 5 vote, too, um, my understanding of, of, the, um, of the, the board is it's both political appointees and elected. Uh, is everybody associated with one party or the other? Well, it's actually nonpartisan. Okay. However, um, <laughs> everything is nonpartisan. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> but the um, 11 members are elected and 19 are appointed by the governor. Uh, and since both Co- Governor Kasich and Governor DeWine have been Republicans, the mm-hmm. appointed members are all Republican. And you're a Republican. I am. And so it got a lot of Republican support then. It did. And then um, you were actually the president at the time, correct? Yes, that's right. How does the board do that? Does the governor decide who's the president or the legislature or is it the the members? Yes, the members select their own leadership. So that's quite an honor then to be in that position, I take it. It was. It was. Let's and talk about was, let's was, talk about that matter of Republican support. Did the governor like the resolution when it came out? Um, the governor's office um, let me know that he was pleased with it. Yes. Well, so you passed the resolution. It I uh, read Jack the four or five points that it seems to be no-brainers, not right. much controversy over right. it. Uh, Laura, do you then go on about the business of the, of the board? Uh, yes, yes. Um, I felt it was the most significant uh, resolution that we had passed during my tenure on the board. I was particularly proud of it, um, but you're exactly right. Um, we went about the business of the board. The main change that was implemented immediately was um, because the resolution supported the idea of individual board members exploring the potential of their own implicit bias, we set up a strictly voluntary um, 
learning sessions about that for board members who were interested. How was that um, uh, received then? Were, did people participate in it? The people um, who had voted for the resolution participated in it. The others were absent. I was reading through the attorney general opinion, and so um, to take us further, the resolution that you and, and the board passed was uh, then rescinded after the after that, correct? That's correct. And as part of that uh, rescission, uh, the uh, new resolution outlined that the attorney general was asked for some opinions about the resolution. That's also correct. Now, was that done before or after you resigned? That was done before. And actually, I made the request uh, in my role as president based on feedback I'd had from other board members. So in an effort to be responsive to board member concerns, I did reach out and ask for the opinion. So the attorney general then is uh, David Yost and uh, read the opinion. And it seemed to me that the attorney general, in its opinion, and he addressed a lot of different aspects of the resolution, but basically felt that these resolutions and the whereas clauses and the policy ideals were all just fine, right? That's all, that's correct. Yeah. And I'm not saying from, from his political standpoint, but from a legal standpoint, the board could do exactly what it did. That's kind of what this board does, right? Yes. And that was also the opinion of the board's attorneys. Okay. But then there were a couple of mandates that the attorney general looked at, right? Yes. And what caught my attention, and Jack and I were, were talking about it, is that the rescinding resolution only really highlighted the one decision by the attorney general that said that you can't basically force all contractors into this biased training. That's that's exactly right. I take that to mean you could have it for some of the contractors if maybe if they had more of a direct role in education or in uh, the schools. But uh, it, because I don't think the attorney general went any further than saying you just can't do it as a blanket rule. Is that your understanding? I think so, although we never tested it because okay. immediately after receiving the attorney general's opinion, we, we ceased and desisted from that requirement. But he also approved the board's ability to require implicit bias training for employees. That was okay. Nothing wrong with that. Was that implemented? Were there any uh, uh, workshops or learning sessions created for employees? There had been um, discussion about that even prior to the resolution. So I think that um, part of that work was already underway. The um, attorney general also pointed out that, uh, at least when his opinion was addressing these contractors, that they're already under state law obligations not to discriminate and not to do the things that this resolution said we shouldn't be doing anyway. Um, so what happened? Why was there the change? Why was there the, um, the uh, push to rescind this resolution? Well, I think what happened was around the same time, uh, there was um, great national and then later became Ohio interest 
in the um, notion of critical race theory. And um, I can't exactly tell you how it happened or why it happened. I can tell you the effect was that we had people coming to address the board, and I received many emails linking the resolution to critical race theory. But I'm going to interject here. I'm going to guess that those people who were talking about critical race theory probably had a far different idea of what critical race theory is than you did. Yes, and I think that's actually part of the problem is that um, very few people seem to really agree on what it is. In in our um, experience, we actually knew of no place in Ohio where critical race theory was being taught K-12. We understood it to be um, a legal framework that actually was developed um, having to do with trying to interpret the different judicial outcomes um, based on race. Right. Um, that was not something that um, Ohio schools typically dig into. But there was a there was another important factor happening at about the same time, and that is, uh, if your resolution was passed in July 2020, the board's composition changed not long after that, didn't it? It did, and several more conservative members were elected to the board at that point in time. So we had two things going, this national misunderstanding of critical race theory and a different composition of the board, right? Yes. What happened to the underlying goals of the resolution then in, in light of this controversy? Was it just kind of lost then in, in, in the haze that was created that, you know, are, are we still concerned about bias in our schools and the effect on, um, uh, you know, minorities? Well, that was what was so incredibly troubling to me. I knew anecdotally and through conversations with educators across the state that the suggestions that were made, recommendations that were made in this resolution, because again, we can't tell school districts, the board can't tell school districts what kind of curriculum to adopt or how to run their schools. Um, but we knew that many districts were um, working on these issues anyway because it does not take a genius to understand how these issues directly impact student achievement. And that has always been the focus of the board is how, how do we raise the bar in student achievement, particularly with um, students who are of color or or black students. What do the, I hate to refer to them as statistics because these are actual students and people, families, but but what what are the statistics that would give you this such a concern that this resolution was important? Well, um, you can look at graduation rates, which in the state of Ohio uh, in 2019, 86% um, of all Ohio students graduated. 89% of all white students graduated, and 75% of black students graduated. 
um, third grade guarantee, close to 95% of all Ohio students um, scored high enough to advance. Um, 97% of white students succeeded at that level, but only 87.5% of black students did. Um, students with disabilities scored higher than black students did. Um, you can also look at things like chronic absenteeism. And there was an interesting article in the dispatch today with updated uh, figures about the percentages of students who are um, defined as having been chronically uh, absent. And whereas 37% of economically disadvantaged students were um, chronically absent in the 2020-2021 school year, 47% of black students were defined as being chronically absent. That's missing 10% or more of the school year. You know what's shocking about all this? There was actually some empirical evidence for what the board was thinking about. Shocking. We never get that with the legislature. Well, and, <laughs> and you can see when there's the um, discrepancies that you're looking at, you try to find out why, because presumably they're getting the same basic education. So so what is it that's causing this? So why did you then focus on, you know, the bias and the, um, the kind of the racial undertones there? Well, part of that is that we had the data that shows that students perform better when they have teachers who look like they do in the classroom. And that was another piece of data that we had. 16.8% uh, of Ohio students uh, identify as black non-Hispanic. Only 4% of Ohio's teachers identify the same way. So we knew that we really needed to attack on a number of fronts. Certainly there are, because of our funding system, economic uh, inequities that uh, we were pleased to see were being addressed somewhat through the uh, facilities um, programs that the state had sponsored and um, also um, in, tr in terms of the advancement of broadband access, those things we saw were happening, but there were others um, in that oftentimes still in the state of Ohio, um, a student's access to materials or the state of the school building that they're in or, or even curriculum, updated curriculum, depends as much on their zip code as it does on anything else. We're, we're chuckling or smiling because that has been a subject in prior podcast discussions. You can, you can predict a child's future from his zip code in terms of health, in terms of education, in terms of being susceptible to crime or going the wrong way. Another interesting factor is you mentioned that students do better when they have teachers that resemble the students. Well, that's been a subject uh, in the medical field. Black women respond better when they have black doctors. It just gives for a better two-way communication, better for trust. So that's interesting that we're hearing that in more, that notion in more than one sphere of life. 
That makes perfect sense. Sure. Laura, what uh, background did you bring to the to the job when you were appointed to the board? And, and um, you know, so what from what perspective do you look at these statistics? Well, I think my main qualification is that I'm the mother of four and the grandmother of six. I'm not a professional educator. I was a, a history and English major undergraduate, and I do have an MBA. Um, but what I brought to the board was a history of serving on local boards of education. I served on both the Worthington Board and the New Albany Board. And when the governor was looking for uh, an appointee and reached out to me, um, I was delighted to have this opportunity because from a personal learning standpoint, my experience was fairly narrow. And it was as if a light bulb went off when I became a part of the state board and started to recognize that um, not everybody has a school district like New Albany. The uh, makeup of the board is of interest to me because it's uh, both elected uh, people and then appointed. What's the rationale behind that? Do you know? Has anybody ever kind of explain that? Uh... Um, I'm probably just reporting what I have heard from other people rather than knowing for certain. But I understand that there was a debate at one time about should the board be all appointed and or should it be all elected? And they decided to do this mix, mix of 19 people. It seems like a lot of people, but um, I would think that having appointed, uh, you could argue, maybe tempers down the division, the political divisions, uh, because when people run for any office, they got to declare a side. Uh, and so you end up at least uh, probably more so today than ever with very partisan people through the election process. Um, and we, Jack and I have that debate all the time about judges, whether they should be appointed or elected. Um, what, but taking this resolution that you did while you were on the board, I found it interesting that it there just wasn't a new resolution talking about these issues of critical race theory. They decided to rescind your resolution, right? Yes. How unique is that, that resolutions from one board are rescinded by a new makeup of the board? I personally had not seen it happen before. I think it is unusual for that to happen. I would uh, say that it's then a political thing. What do you think, Jack? I'm shocked to hear you say that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and it's unfortunate because... um, uh, you know, somebody's trying to make a political point and they're taking some very, very serious issues and they're, uh, you know, diminishing them. But um, I have had this dis- debate with my wife when the legislature decided that they were going to make sure that uh, the schools taught the founding documents. My position was, why are these people in the legislature telling the professionals in the schools what to do and what not to do they got enough on their hands and enough on their hands that they don't do well enough as it is right so (laughs) i would go to some political functions and i would ask these politicians hey um kind of curious 
do you know what the Eighth Amendment is to the United States Constitution? And boy, would Ann get mad. Why are you harassing that guy or gal? And I'm just kind of curious if they've ever read the documents that we're now forcing these students to read and whether they really know what's what's in them. And I just it just tickled me that you know, either they would just, they knew immediately what I was doing or they were so confused that uh, very few people, and I teach a um, law school class, Laura, and I start my first semester, um, first day with, all right, tell me the first 10 amendments to the United States Constitution. And usually they can get four or five or six, but hardly anybody gets them all. So. That's that's pretty interesting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, you, you hit on a good topic, Um and that is the relationship between the legislature and the State Board of Education. There really isn't much of a relationship outside of the fact that I think the legislature has, there are laws that talk about certain minimal things that have to be in everybody's curricula, curriculum, if I'm not mistaken. But those are some very basic historical matters. I, I would think a significant I'm guessing, let's say 80% of the curriculum is left up to local school boards. But my point is we've been reading about a number of legislatures starting to invade the province of school boards. How did – were you seeing that happen toward the end of your tenure? What was the feeling? What were you and your fellow board members talking about? What did that feel like? Um, yes, I definitely started to notice that. As you know, that there are a couple of bills pending. Um, uh, SB, SB 182, we talked about that a few weeks ago. Yes, exactly, um, which I thought was pretty interesting. I think the whole subject is rather interesting because – the legislature is, of course, controlled by the Republicans, who are the party of small government. And I think it's fascinating mm -hmm. that the party of small government has now decided to in intervene much more strongly with local districts, even though Ohio has a long and proud history of local control. So to me, that's a change in what I've seen, and it's also a very troubling change to me as a person who cares about education, but more importantly, a person who cares about the state of Ohio and the United States. You were uh, appointed by Governor Kasich, and what was your first term? How many years was it? Uh, four. Four, and then Governor DeWine was the governor and reappointed you? Yes. <laughs> How does that... Uh, approval process work and was there a change in it from your first appointment to your second as far as the the senate's ohio senate's role another interesting question <laughs> there was a dramatic change um, between my first and second appointments uh, my first appointment i was never confirmed by the senate the um, no one was it hadn't been done in years and years and um, interestingly enough, then, my second term, that became something that um, Senator Huffman um, decided that he wanted to exercise some control over. And uh, he, in, in the fall of 2020, 
brought most of the appointed board members into his office for a little heart-to-heart talk about what he felt was um, important for appointed members to remember. And um, he was not generally supportive of the resolution that the board had passed. So let me stop you for a second. What did that sound like? Um, it was a cordial conversation. No, I mean, how did he communicate? <laughs> what did he communicate about that resolution that he didn't like? He, he, he communicated, to the best of my recollection, that he was very concerned about critical race theory and saw a, a, a potential link between what we were doing. In the resolution. And and let's be real clear. Your resolution didn't even use the word critical race theory or the phrase, I should say. To be perfectly honest with you, I had never heard the phrase critical race theory when we wrote the resolution. But he was talking about it. Yeah. Well, and you read the resolution and I don't know how you can get there because it really doesn't discuss curriculum other than the suggestion that we would – the board would listen to people out there in in the education field about these issues. Um, I was listening to a different podcast, Jack, not ours, the other day, but it but John Stewart was on, and he were, they were talking about free speech. But the point he made, I think, goes to all of this: that being engaged, hearing what everybody has to say, and understanding it is far better than just saying you cannot do it. And we don't want to talk about it anymore. And it seems to me this this critical race theory is more of a of a hammer to get to a political end than it has anything to do with with really educating our kids. Well, just think about it. What a what an offensive position it is to say you can't talk about something, especially when it's talking about race, which is. An extremely important topic. Well, let's dig down into that for a minute. Okay. I mean, we watch the news. Uh, I imagine at your position when you would see school board meetings get on the news because of how rowdy people became. Obviously, there are people out there, maybe a lot of them, that are concerned enough about critical race theory to to come and and talk to school boards uh, across our state. And then, as we were discussing before we started, it seems to be the same crowd that talks about uh, vaccine mandates. Uh, What was your experience uh, watching these and talking to the people that were involved? Um, Yeah, it it was, and it continues to be quite interesting because, uh, and honestly, I came away from it in much the same place that you just stated, that I do believe that critical race theory became a vehicle to undermine the work that we were trying to do in terms of equity and opportunity for students of color. The term has been perverted as best I can see because when I hear the critics of critical race theory, they are saying things about critical race theory that I cannot find from the people who are knowledgeable about critical race theory. There's just 
there's just really no overlap at all. They're talking about something else. And if it were true, it would have no place in a school system. But I haven't heard anything from the opponents that smacks of reality. That's a, yeah. Uh, one you're, of ki- the you're kind of raising your eyebrows like I'm like I got that wrong. No, no, not at all. I, I was going to ask Laura kind of the, okay. the, the next step in that process because now we've got legislation that may say in very vague terms you can't do something because they're trying to address critical race theory that they just don't understand. Well, doesn't – didn't your board, don't they do disciplinary action? For teachers. For yes, teachers. we do. So these teachers are being told you can't do this. To me, when we were reading the statute with one of our guests, they're very vague in in what critical race theory is. But now the Board of Education has to bring in a teacher and discipline them for, you know, what we would as lawyers say is kind of a vague rule. Was that happening at all at the time you were there? No, because um, neither of these bills had passed. And I, I, I don't believe either of them have passed to this day. But, um, I I mean, I was very aware of the penalties because um, in one of the bills, the the consequence is uh, discipline up to a teacher losing his or her license and a school district losing up to 100% of state funding. And uh, it offends me as a person who loves history and who is trained as a historian because I believe that students, and it must be age appropriate, we can never forget that, it has to be age appropriate, but students are entitled and have to hear the story told from many different perspectives, and it's the work of a skilled teacher to help those students figure out the meaning of the information. That is the root of critical thinking. And everybody says, oh, we want our kids to graduate as critical thinkers. Well, that desire goes away when a student's critical thinking might end up in a different spot than their parents' summary of critical thinking or their pastors. Uh, So I think, you know, as as I think about really what's at stake here, I think that we have presented um, or have been presented with this real important contest between really educating our students and educating them only with um, a prescribed and accepted point of view. And that's what I've been reading in terms of legislative efforts in other states statute to read along the lines where you can talk about name your historical figure, but you really can't get into the substance of what the fight was, the con- the racial conflict and the issues. You can just refer to them as historical figure. It's like, oh, really? That's not really history. That's just sort of a, a soundbite. Exactly. And, you know, these teachers are not going to know where the line is until the state board goes through a a multitude of disciplinary hearings to say, yes, you're okay, or no, you're not. How do those complaints get to the board? Can can, uh, 
can uh, parents bring complaints against teachers? Could a could a parent say, "Wait a minute, here's the rule about critical race theory. This teacher is now violating that." And would could it get to the board's disciplinary process that way? Yeah, my understanding of the legislation is that uh, other teachers, administrators, and parents can all bring complaints against the teachers. The way the way the bill is, was you know, the status of the bill the last time I looked at it. I'm sorry, Jack. Laura, what what Jack and I know as lawyers is the legislature can pass a statute and then when the lawyers get it and then you get this fact pattern, that fact pattern, that fact pattern, pretty soon we're using it any way we want to to benefit our client. And that scares me when I read a statute in this area that is so critical about whether teachers or can lose their license or, or it goes up the, you know, the chain because it's just not very descriptive of what can or can't be done. Well, yeah, and your point's well, and what your point leads to is a matter of litigation. There'll be employment cases and there's got to be a constitutional law aspect lurking in all this because you're suppressing by government action a teacher's right to speak. Yeah, yeah, you, you would... Um that's an interesting area to get into. Um, uh, how much, um, how much is free speech versus uh, curriculum driven? But uh, going back to this idea that uh, critical race theory is is also tied in the media when when they report about a school board meeting to the vaccine mandates. Did you have any understanding of uh, how those got connected from, you know, talking to the people on the front end of of those meetings? Um, well, it was vaccine mandates and also masking. Do we mask or do we not mask? And um, the only explanation I could figure out was that um, the the changes that we have all been forced to make in the way we live our lives because of COVID has heightened the level of anger and intolerance and frustration. And I think that as I look at it and try and figure out how do we go from this very uh, uh, visionary, positive statement to where we ended up, I think that you're right. They all got tangled up together and were to more or less a degree um, a result of people's anger, their fear, their um, looking for someone to blame for what was happening. Well, fear, loss of control, insecurity, those are always the founding blocks for rage and for anger. Now, here's a flashback. Something I was reading the other night brought back the name Lee Atwater. You remember that name? Political consultant who used race in a very indirect way to propel the careers or the campaigns, I think, of both Ronald Reagan and George H. Bush. It was terrible what he did. But I'm wondering if there's some connection to that sort of campaigning to what we're seeing with critical race theory today, except that today we're talking about it directly but I think for political purposes. Lee Atwater was indirect, but still for political purposes. It uh, comes down to 
I think, a fairly simple algorithm, which is you have people that are just using critical race theory to get ahead, mostly politically, some to uh, change the status quo, and then you have others that just don't understand it, and they have gone along with the people that are against it. And then you have other people that do understand it and really think it's a, it's a genuine problem. They just, you know, and, and those are the ones that can be engaged and you can talk to and you can kind of figure out where they're coming from. Um, but, you know, it is a, a, I think, simple algorithm, but one that how can you solve it? How can you reverse that? Well, we're not going to figure that out today, but I want to go back. Wait a minute. Laura told her she had the answer. Oh, wait. She, did, you, I, did I say that? <laughs> I was hallucinating. <laughs> I, I want to go back to the – because of what you just said, Guns, I want to go back to the, the matter of Governor DeWine. Now, he liked that first resolution. So we were told. Okay. I, I, I realize you don't have a hotline to Mike DeWine's office. I got that. But what was the response from the governor's – office for the second resolution? Um, honestly, I wasn't around long enough to get any kind of a reaction. But you did have a phone call from his chief of staff. I did. I did. And, um, you know, I was told that uh, a Senator Hoffman had the votes to keep me from being confirmed. And... I said, well, I would still like to go through the confirmation hearing. I would like to be able to talk about these issues. And I was told that that would not end well. And I said, well, the only way I will resign is if the governor actually asked me to resign. And um I was told by his chief of staff, the governor is asking you to resign. There's a lot of um, power play, you know, between the governor and the legislatures. And um, this issue of uh, COVID has really brought that into stark, you know, uh, contrast. Um, and I think that, uh, at least from what I've read, you have a lot of respect for Governor DeWine. And certainly, I think you and I are fans of his, uh, if I go out on a limb and <laughs> say that as, 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 as Republicans. Absolutely. Yeah. And um, it seems to me that maybe uh, the legislature should stop tying the hands of teachers and the governor <laughs> and pass a resolution or two along those lines. What say you, Mr. Dorora? I can't add any wisdom to what you just said. <laughs> <laughs> Laura, thanks for coming in and talking to us about this. I wish you were still on the um, Board of Education. I wish that uh, this had not uh, happened because good people around our state are being pushed out of important roles and they're not stepping up for important roles because of what happened to you. And uh, uh, it's nice to meet you and nice to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you. I enjoyed meeting both of you. Well, it was a great conversation. We'll be back in another week or so with another important social justice issue. And we hope that you join us so that it's not just us talking about this, these issues, but all of us. Our thanks to WOSU and our sound engineer, Eric French and his assistant, Anthony. Until we meet next time, so long.